Okay, if I can get everybody to come on in, we'll get started. You know, I hate to embarrass people, but I am about to. <laughs> what? Just start? Well, I'm just going to call one of these standing up to pray. No. Okay, well, we're going to open in prayer for our lesson this morning, October 31st. Yes. Thank you. All right. Lord God, uh, we just thank you for a beautiful, sunshiny day, Lord, with a cool, crisp air and just the way you bless us in so many ways. And we thank you that you've given us a letter here that you had uh, written to us uh, many, many years ago, Lord. And, and the love that you show for the Thessalonians, Lord, we know it's for us as well. And we thank you that Paul was uh, responsible before you and carried out uh, the deed, the task that you had for him. We, uh, we are humble and uh, we know that we cannot adequately handle your word or the depths of it, but we seek your face and we pray this day that your name would be honored in Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to read from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14. It was for this He called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, last week... I spent the entire lesson going through verse 13, and, and we saw some amazing truths of God that, that He had chosen. He chooses us for salvation from the beginning, and it's really before the foundation of the world. And we saw the process. We spent quite some time looking at the process. He, he gave it to us. It's through sanctification by the Holy Spirit and belief in the truth. And then we, uh, we looked at John 16 and uh, verses 7 through 11, and, and it uh, helps us understand the uh, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, how he, he brings us to the point that we see that it's the sin of unbelief that keeps us from salvation. And uh, he, makes, he makes it, he convinces, it says in the Word, he convicts, and he enlightens us uh, to the truth that is the gospel so that we can make a free will choice. You know, I like to think of it like uh, this. I think the Holy Spirit clears the table. But first we have to be drawn to the table. And I think that this verse that we just read in 14 helps us to see that. Scripture's really pretty clear that uh, in order for anyone to come to Christ, we must first be called that is, we must be drawn, because left to our own devices, we would never come. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44. Again, you may just want to write these down, because I'll be using a few scriptures. Jesus, speaking to the crowds in John 6, 44, said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, 
and I will raise him up on the last day. The Father draws us. And we should also be aware of the fact that being drawn to the Lord is not limited to only those who will believe. Listen to what Jesus himself said in John chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. He was speaking to a group of Greeks at the time. This was after the triumphal entry. And Jesus said, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. What does he mean, lifted up from the earth? The cross, the crucifixion. He's referring to his death, right? And really, that's the centerpiece of the gospel when we think about it. So we see that he's drawing us to the gospel there. Um, so verse 14 is telling us basically the means by which the Father draws us to the table, if you will. And uh, it's the gospel. And uh, that makes it very important. It makes it very important that we get it right. You know, there's a passage uh, in Galatians where Paul, uh, I, I guess he exhibits what I would call righteous anger. He's very protective for the gospel, and he wants it right. Let me read that to you, Galatians 1, uh, verses 6 through 9. Paul speaking, says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him, that is God, who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some of you who are disturbing, there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching a gospel to you, a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. You know, we have a lot of high-profile, very popular pastors these days that probably ought to listen to that warning. That warning. Uh, and it's really sad that in this present hour, there's really so little clear teaching of the gospel itself. What is the gospel? Well, I wrote this down. This is what the late Dr. John Walford said regarding the gospel. He said, The good news was that Christ, the Son of God, had come and that He had died on the cross for the sins of the whole world. The good news was that though He was buried, He was raised the third day from the grave in newness of life, in victory over the grave, in evidence that He was indeed the very Son of God. It was a demonstration of the power of God and the deity of Christ's own person. It was evidence of the fact that when he died, he really had accomplished that which only an infinite person could accomplish, our eternal and infinite redemption. This is the true gospel. So as we read in verse 14, the first half of that verse uh, really has Paul looking back to the Thessalonians' past when, when they had heard and believed the truth of the gospel. 
In the second half of the verse, Paul's holding out their glorious future with the Lord Jesus Christ. We know they had been under real persecution and affliction. But Paul knew that if they would lift their eyes up from their circumstances, that they could see far greater things, eternal things. This is summed up well in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 through 18. Paul wrote this. He said, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, that is temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now verse 14 also says uh, in the second half, to gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only will all believers be with the Lord in His glory, But the scriptures state that before God is finished with us on earth, we will be made fit, perfectly fit for heaven. Listen to Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. Paul speaking again says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he, God, who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So then in that day, we all will be truly conformed to the image of Christ. So what is the the day of Christ Jesus? Well, the short answer is that's the day that we gain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's, it's the day when he returns to redeem us. And I mean our bodies, actually. Our souls, our spirits are redeemed already at the time when we believe. And so we're talking about our resurrection or our translation, depending on whether we're sleeping, that is, dead, or whether we are alive. We saw that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Paul tells us something of this in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. It says, Now to him, that is God the Father, who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. You know, and in the King James Version, it says, to Him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus. So a a glory is spoken of there. You know, John the Apostle also spoke of this in uh, 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. John said, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, that would be at His return, we call the rapture, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is, and He will be in His glory. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. So let's go on then to verse 15. Any comments to that point? Verse 15, back in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. 
So standing firm, or some uh, translations will say standing fast, it implies that what a person is standing upon is solid, kind of like the foundation of a building. For the Christian, though, there's only one foundation. We know it's the chief cornerstone. It's the one that the religious Jewish rulers rejected, right? Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11 affirms this. It says, For no man can lay a foundation other than that, other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. I'd also point out that to stand firm doesn't necessarily mean to stand still. You know, among Christians, and myself included, there's a, there's a tendency, a natural tendency, uh, in our flesh just to backslide. And there are many things that are vying for our attention these days. It can happen that we become weary of doing good. And we'll see that phrase, weary of doing good, uh, in the next chapter in verse 13 because Paul is concerned that this could happen to the Thessalonian believers. But continuing in verse 15, listen to what Paul tells these believers. He says, to hold to the traditions, whether by word of mouth or letter from us. From us. Of course, we understand that this means all of the apostolic teachings, which would ultimately comprise the New Testament. Most commentaries would agree on this. But I'd like to deviate, <laughs> like I do, from the standard interpretation here just a little bit because I think we should or might consider uh, another application. First, let me say this. Only the writings of the men who wrote the Scriptures, both Old and New Testament, only those are inspired and inerrant. However, I do believe that we are currently living in difficult days. And I believe that the forces of darkness are getting their message out to the masses without being impeded. And there are many people being so much like sheep or without much discernment. And they fall for all kinds of absurdities. The word for traditions in the Greek is paradosis. It means that which is given alongside or close beside. You may not know it, but I was not saved until I was 37 years old. I hadn't trusted Christ as my Savior until I was 37. And it seems like at that time, the Lord brought many, many sound teachers to me. And I was just feeding on the Word, and I was feeding on uh, their commentaries as well. These are guys like McGee, I quote him all the time, uh, Harry Ironside, Lewis Berry Chafer, and uh, A.W. Tozer, G. Morgan Campbell, Oswald Chambers. All these guys, for me, came alongside to Scripture and really opened up the Scripture to me. You know, I was really hoping Charlie was going to be here today because I planned on embarrassing him. <laughs> but he'll just have to hear it. What? Okay. <laughs> So, <clears throat> I just want to say that, you know, although they're becoming fewer and harder to find, there are still men of God around who are bold to give God's Word, and they do it with sound teaching and with accurate, accurately handling it. And I would say 
that we are very blessed to have such a teacher here at Bernie Bible Church. And, you know, Charlie's sermons do indeed come alongside Scripture. And we as Christians should hold fast to what we are taught in this church. Not infallible and not inerrant. I'm not saying that, but precious teachings full of light in an ever-darkening world. And I just don't think that we should take that for granted. That's what I had to say on that. So, verses 6, yes. Right. All these sort of good things, but you know, we are always to be testing and asking and going back to the scriptures. Never sit under anyone and just assume we're always hearing truth. And that's very good advice. Yes, we do. You do. You know, you're, we're still held as responsible and accountable for what we tolerate as the truth of God, and the, and the standard that we have is before us right here. Even Charlie. You know, we do check those things, and uh, that's what we are called to. That's good, very good advice. Check. Okay, verses 16 and 17. Let me read those. Um, now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work. So these last two verses then... Uh, end with prayer for the Thessalonians, prayer for comfort and strength. And uh, these uh, were two desires Paul had for them, and it was probably in view of their recent anxiety, which would have been created by this false letter that we studied, you know, a couple of weeks back regarding the day of the Lord, whether they were in it or not. And so they needed God's grace to strengthen them. But I would also draw your attention to the phrasing here in the sentence. Uh, You know, we have both the Son and the Father mentioned in in that verse, those verses, and uh, they're treated as one. Did you catch that with the verb? Uh, It was has loved, not have loved. I like that. So let's do. Any questions, any comments there? I will move on uh, then into chapter 3. I'm going to read the entire chapter at this point, and we'll come back through it. So finally, brothers, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have the truth, but the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. 
For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So up until now, Paul has been focusing on the Thessalonian believers, their situation, their needs. And by reminding them of the God's great truths and love for them, Paul is trying to comfort and instruct them in their afflictions and persecutions. But they were not the only ones with troubles. Paul and Silas and Timothy were also having difficulties and difficult times. Consider for a minute the task that had been handed down to Paul to accomplish, committed to Paul. In other words, his commission. You know, we can find that in some places, but one of the best is in Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 16. And I say that because we get it from the very mouth of Christ. This is when Ananias was told to go and lay hands on Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus, to uh, give his sight back to him. I'll pick it up. Acts 9, verses 10 through 16. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, listen, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Paul did indeed have a daunting commission from the Lord. You know, at times I'm sure it was lonely. Going from place to place, strange cities where he wasn't welcome, no nice hotels, no honorariums. Um, he had to arrange his own way in public meetings and, and on and on. And, and all the while he had to be a glowing example of a testimony to Jesus Christ. You know, and apart from fellowship with the Lord, it was, I'm sure, very difficult at times, lonely. And it would have been quite discouraging for most people. So he's not really complaining here, but he is asking the Thessalonian believers to pray for him and his mission. And even that was for their benefit. You know, sometimes the best way for us to bear our own burdens is to get under someone else's usually greater burden. Isn't it great that praying for others can make our own load sometimes seem lighter? 
Paul said he needed prayers, prayers for the Word of God to spread rapidly. Some translations will say have a free course. Sometimes we don't realize how much our pastors and teachers actually do need prayers from us. Preachers want to expound the Word in a way that excites listeners to obey it and to love it even more. But we should be assured that unseen powers of darkness like to wage spiritual warfare against such pastors. And no one can win the battle alone. Paul needed prayer, and he asked for it. These uh, perverse and evil men that he speaks of, uh, they were both Jews and Gentiles. We got a glimpse of them in the previous chapter uh, 2 of Second Thessalonians in verse 12. We, we read about them there. And actually for the Thessalonians, getting back to praying, for, uh, for Paul, it was really, it's their privilege. It's our privilege. Prayer is not a gift that only some receive. One of the great things about, is that, about it is that when we pray, every Christian is really on the same level. We each come to God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Moving on to verse 3, it says, we, it begins with the word but... And that then places the Lord in contrast to the previous perverse and evil man. So God is faithful, whether they are not. All of his promises are kept, and he hears and answers prayers, and he would strengthen and protect the Thessalonians from Satan and evil. In other words, like Romans 8.28, the Lord would work out all things for good for those who love him. Verse 4 illustrates that Paul was anticipating their faithfulness in praying and that uh, the Thessalonians would indeed be faithful in other things. In verse 5, let me read that. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. So Paul desires that the Lord would direct their hearts into the love of Christ. And this is because the world is constantly tempting us with so many other things, things that can lure us away, pleasures and comforts and money and power and entertainment and so on and so on. But rightfully, we need to remember the Lord is a jealous God and wants us to love Him first and always. Paul then uh, points them in the, in the next part of the verse to the steadfastness of Christ, it says, uh, King James Version says, into the patient waiting for Christ. Gives us a little more light on that phrase. It's, it's really our expectation of Jesus that he's focusing them on and us on in his return for us, right? And we should note, this is important, that they were directed to Christ's return. They were not directed to be waiting for the day of the Lord, and they were not directed to be waiting for the time of tribulation, the tribulation period. period. Any comments? All right. Now, in the remainder of chapter 3, Paul is listing and, and even commanding these Christians regarding some things that they should be doing while they're waiting for Christ to return. I would also point out commanding believers is not something that Paul does a whole lot of, and so I think that it has a greater emphasis every time that we do see him doing it. So let me then read verses 6 and 7. 
It says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's His authority, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. So Paul gives a, fel- uh, gives a command there not to have fellowship with these unruly types in the church. And these were believers, okay? So I think what we have here is like the first form of social distancing in the, from a Christian attitude. <laughs> Predates COVID. Um, and their problem, these unruly ones, their problem seems to have stemmed from an incorrect interpretation of Paul's first letter. And that was with regard to the day of the Lord then. So these really weren't thinking that they were in the day of the Lord. They were confused in that they were thinking that Christ's return was coming so quickly, as if guaranteed, that it was going to be a, just upon them before, uh, before anything. And they couldn't see the point in working. So they quit their jobs, and they're just hanging out, just hanging around. The fact is, they were just naturally lazy. Um, instead, Paul held up himself along with Silas and the others, as examples. Uh, Paul, then we see Paul's standard of Christian living was a life of order. He's about order, and he's about reverence. And so, he says, avoid them. Avoiding, avoiding unruly company is actually good scriptural advice. Let me give you a couple, couple of verses for that. In Proverbs thirteen twenty. it says... Um, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And uh, also in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, another wise saying is, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Yes. Hold to the traditions which you were taught, and then he's talking about their example, which is, I think, in a, but then I'm thinking about the contrast of how they were working and expecting nothing compared to the priests, and how the priests were expected to be held in very high regard. Were, you know, they were serving, but they were kind of expecting to be served, and they were profiting from you know selling animals. Right. And so the Jews, is, what the Jews had seen in, in that tradition was, he's going, that's not, that's not the example to follow. Totally antithetical, right, to that. He's speaking of the Jewish, the Levitical priest, as basically built into their calling that they would, uh, you know, be over all of the sacrificial uh, services on the land, on the animals, and they also withheld a portion for themselves. That's where they're living came from. They weren't really given land like other of the tribes, but they had a source of income guaranteed. You know, Paul had every bit of authority as an apostle to be treated uh, at a higher, much higher level than he ever chose to call on. And he does it for a purpose. And that's the difference in uh, following out of faith and instead of just being part of a system that's in effect. Um, let me read verses 8 through 13 again. Uh, This is Paul, again, speaking to the Thessalonians. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, 
But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. So Paul's basically saying, you know, this isn't what I taught you, what you're doing. This isn't what we taught you. While we were among you, we earned our own living. We wouldn't be a burden to them. We would not be dependent on you. We paid our own way, even though by rights as apostles they did not have to. And they did it in order to set an example of how you should be living. In verse 10, I love it, Paul spells it out, you know, no work, no eat. And uh, that's good advice. So, you know, truly these, they were really just few uh, unruly brothers. They, their problem was really that they were idle. That's not a good thing. Idleness leads to all kinds of trouble. Uh, I've, I've heard it said that idleness is fertile ground for the devil to sow seeds. And another, another moniker he gives them is busybodies. What do y'all think about that term, to be a busybody? I have, I have my definition. Someone who does not mind their own business but tries to take care of everyone else's. And that's what idleness gives you time to go into that. You know, Paul tells them essentially get busy. If they earned an honest living and paid their way, then they would not have time to be interfering in other people's business. That's all good advice. In fact, it sounds like my father now, also, Paul tells them to work in quiet fashion, which means what? What does that mean to work in quiet fashion? To not make a big fanfare of it, you know, to not make a lot of noise. Just do your work and, and be quiet and, and do a good job, you know. Right. It's not about you know, you showing off and, and, and that, this and that. It's just about being honest and, and uh, doing so quietly. And so verse 13, again, Paul gives a short exhortation uh, to those who had been doing well. But, you know, uh, sometimes you can grow weary of doing good. Do you, anybody in here ever do that? Grow weary of doing good? I know I do. And, you know, that's why you, you just you don't stand still. Um, they had been doing well, and, and he prays that they wouldn't grow tired of it. Hey, Jack. Yeah. Real quickly, the boys and I went and watched um, our middle school football team play for their championship yesterday. Uh-huh. They're playing against a team that we've dealt with before that are they're not nice people. And it's really, I was talking to our high school head coach, his, uh-huh. his son plays on the middle school team as well. Really easy get down to their level. Isn't it's it? really easy to want to tit for tat to, you know, every nasty thing they say to come back with another yeah. nasty thing. It's really easy to do that. We, we are not... Why does the Holy that. Spirit let us do that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's just 
Right. That's where we were wanting to be. Yeah, You know, that's another thing. Justice, justice. Oh, my gosh. Aren't you glad that God is just? And he pulls that away from us. And we're not allowed to be the judge in things. Oh, how, how bad our sin looks on somebody else. Always. What, Nathan? Yeah, I believe where it says, don't eat my mom's disorder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Well, easily, you know, the, yes, we have a new nature, but the problem is we still have our flesh, okay? And that's why we haven't, we're not at the, the day of Christ Jesus yet. He will redeem that. I can't wait to see what I'm like when I'm fit for heaven. Oh, my gosh. I might, you know, be nice. <laughs> okay, for, uh, verses 14 and 15. We're going to end up perfectly. If anyone uh, does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So the uh, discipline that Paul's putting forth in 2 Thessalonians, this is not excommunication, all right? We should remember. Actually, there's a whole sequence of the way things should proceed. And he has... Actually, he did. If we go back to First Thessalonians, we'll see he did warn about some of this back in First Thessalonians. So he's warned before. Now he's moved to stage two, which is to socially distance from them. You know, it's an ostracism of sorts. But it, the purpose is not to drive them away. The purpose is to bring them home. You know, by shame, if shame, if it's necessary. You know, Paul, he talked about turning someone over to Satan, a believer. You know, oh, those are strong words, but you know, it's better that we come back to the fold. That if we can, you know, the earlier we learn God's lessons, the better. Any comments there? Right. Very good. Right? Yes. Right. No. Right. And she's talking about not going after them, rebuking them to their face, and you know, constantly getting in their face about it, but to let the ostracizing <laughs> accomplish its purpose. And. Uh, I think it's in another, so that made me think of something. The Thessalonian believers that were not going weary of doing good read this letter, but so did the unruly people, okay? They're reading this too. They don't, they already know what Paul has said. They have already been rebuked to their face, essentially, here. And they understand that they're going to be ostracized until they feel ashamed. I mean, it's a, it's a softer way of dealing with them, but to bring them back, you know, to a realization and back in that, you know, they're believers, they're brothers, they're not enemies. So, so the last uh, three verses are a, a prayer. Paul finishes now, rather than asking for prayer, he's praying back for the Thessalonians. He says, now, 
May the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So he finishes, and I think uh, in these last verses, he has three specific things that he's praying for. Uh, first, he prays for their peace. You know, he started with their peace uh, and grace. He prays for their grace as well, the Lord's grace over them. And he also prays for the Lord's presence uh, with them. You know, you can't go wrong with any of that. Uh, he also certifies the letter as genuine by uh, placing his own mark. And indeed, that certification gives them, gives us, uh, you know, the knowledge that this is indeed inspired, inspired word of God. It is uh, Scripture. So I'm glad that he did that. That's really all I have. And I've enjoyed these two letters uh, to the Thessalonians a great deal. I appreciate everyone uh, sitting through it and uh, helping us you know, get through it and, and see what the Lord has had for us. We will, next week, I'm going to put you on the spot. Kelly's going to be teaching next week. And I'll be back for a week, and then we'll see what happens. Okay? And... Uh, Jeff, will you close us in prayer? Father God, all your goodness for us. That you are in us to redirect our sinful selves, Lord. Thank you that you have the power you have to restrain sin and all that you can do. Thank you that we do not have to live in our in our flesh. Jack and for all the work that he put into this. Amen.